You're very welcome to the Locker Room podcast. Uh, we've told you each week that we want to get some big names onto the podcast. We've had Bernard Jackman. We've had Chris Ramsey. Uh, we couldn't find any big names this week. So <laughs> we've got Mick Foley from the Sunday Times and we've got Declan Vogue from the Belfast Telegraph. Lads, we're going to have a chat today about sports journalism. And I think it's only right at this stage to have a chat about where the GA is at, but how it's changed over the last 20 years, and we'll get into a few discussions like that. So you're very welcome, both of you. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks, Kieran. Great stuff. We've got, we also have Joe Coulter here. So anyone who's been following the podcast, we got rid of Joe after the first few episodes. The people wanted him back, so we dragged him back in. Uh, he was back in for, Joe, which one were you back in for? The Bernard Jackman show, and it was quite popular. Uh, and now he's even managed to get rid of Ross Bennett from the show altogether. So Ross is not here with us today, but Joe is back. Yeah, Ross got the sack. Thanks very much for bringing me back here. <laughs> you're back. Momentarily, you're back, Joe. Just be on your best behavior. Lads, I, I was quite interested in this one. Um, I've always been interested in sports journalism, but also in ways I think you lads are in a good position as regards analyzing games because... You're close enough to the action to get some insights and you've got access to top players and top managers and the top games. But obviously as well, you're far away out of the game not to be uh, held back by not giving out what's going on in the game or the PR exercises that often happen and all. So you guys get, gain a bit of kind of close insight into the game and into teams. Yeah, I suppose, Kieran, it's... it's um... It's changed a lot over the years, you know. Um, yeah, like I mean, I, sp I suppose you kind of have to, when you're thinking of your role as a, as, a, as a sports journalist, you actually have to think yourself first and foremost as a journalist, you know. Um, like I'm sure Declan was the same as myself. I mean, we grew up with Gaelic games and, and with hurling in particular in our house. And I mean, it's it's. I always remember my father saying to me when I started in sports journalism, he said, "Be careful that your your hobby or your passion." doesn't become your job and suddenly become a real labor and something that you don't still love when you're when you're when it's your work you know i think there, there there is a lot to that there is a lot to that and i think part of the way of sort of distancing yourself in that regard is to sort of you have to remember that you're a journalist first and foremost and that you know if if um if in the morning we weren't ga journalists let's just say that we'd be able to turn our hands to news journalism or business journalism or whatever. It should be the same set of skills, really. You should have the same rigor. You should take the same approach to a story, to and to dealing with people and keeping distance and all the stuff, all the stuff that you like to aspire to try to do. GA journalism is different in the sense that is the whatever whatever about elites and and about the All Ireland and the big stuff. It's still fundamentally a community organisation, a community operation. And while the sort of the proximity, I suppose, of your big, your top players to to the people, it's, it's a lot more distance there now than there was a long time ago. They're still part of your community, and they're still it's it's a different it's a different kind of balance. But at the same time, you 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 have to sort of maintain that sort of distance and that rigor for yourself. And with that comes, and with that will come, you know, criticism and difficulties with access sometimes and fallouts and ups and downs and ins and outs um 
and it, again, because you're treating somebody's passion as your job, there can be friction there. There can be friction there sometimes. But uh, I don't know how you. What I don't know. I presume it's the same for you, Declan. Or would you have had the yeah. same thinking on it? Yeah, um, it's just I suppose you know it's a go-to thing for us all in GA journalism for journalism to to bemoan the the uh, lack of access that we have to top teams, top players, uh, and I think that nothing makes the general public uh, fall asleep quicker than a, a journalist having to moan about that. But I mean, you know, you trace that back, Michael, of course, to like God rest and Paddy's time in Kerry. Like you know, Paddy's attitude was ridiculous at times during the year, during the years, and you would have had far more uh, exposure to that than I would have. But he simply didn't want anyone talking whatsoever. Like you know, he didn't want. Uh, then come uh, the flow season, he would be all over the papers himself, throwing a uh, hot ball at the boys and getting his digs in at lads and having a bit of crack and fun. But during the year, he was complete locked in. I mean. His, uh, his autobiography of Sean Potts was just full of that kind of stuff. That, that not going to let anyone say anything. And then fast forward to this year, um, and Kerry in their first few league games after the game, there was no Kerry player put up for interview. Um, I was in Eden Dork the day that David Clifford got, was red carded against her own, and there's no Kerry player put up. And then, see, was it? Paul Brennan from the Kerry Man was, was actually asking, is this the way it is now? Because that would be a completely new development. Uh, it's been maybe the case with Dublin under Jim Galvin for some years. But the fact is that no player out of a 26-man panel was capable of saying a few words for five minutes to journalists after a game or could be trusted with that. It's, it's kind of worrying. But uh, as well as, you know, access we might say it's evolved or it is, you know, some people would have maintained the same levels going back 20 years. You have the emergence of social media, podcasts, uh, all that kind of thing. There's just a million more uh, elements tugging at a thread of inter-county managers and players and sports people that weren't there before. And then in that, you know, people get kind of precious about their role or, or their position and you see uh, genuine, maybe massive scoops, like say, for example, Dermot Connolly returning to the Dublin panel a couple of years ago. And rather than you know it being broken as such by uh, a journalist, the Dubs TV, the in-house publicity channel, uh, just sneak it out with, in the middle of an interview where Jim Galvin just says his name in the list of a, lo- a number of different people who are returned from injuries or back. Uh, so PR has entered the equation. Um, access is denied. But for me, the only way to do this and remain sane, I mean, there's, there's no point waiting about for people to land, you know, spuds on your plate. You have to kind of go out and seek out stuff. Uh, and some of the more enjoyable things I have done have been uh, where you just go off the beaten path and just say, you know what, you're going to try this guy and see what happens. One of my most enjoyable days over the last number of years in journalism was a day with Darren. Hughes on his farm in Scottstown and did for the Irish Examiner. I mean, just spent four hours with him, uh, checking on cattle, watching him do the milking, all that kind of thing. And we just, like, you know, I mean, I suppose Darren Hughes, the other side of 30, uh, and he's probably a bit more relaxed and, uh, you know, in his own skin and all that. And he knows what he is. Uh, and he didn't have Monica O'Rourke you know, parting on his shoulder about, like, don't talk to anybody. He just says, yeah, come on ahead and spend half a day up there. Great crack. 
Uh, and it goes back, there's there's a couple of elements about that too, like the Paul Kimmich thing, of never, he never bothers interviewing anyone under 30 because he's got nothing, nothing much to say anyway. And in the main, that's, that's dead right. But I think uh, the, the crucial element of all that is go out, find your own stuff and make the most of it because uh, you are not going to get anything truly worthwhile if there are if there is a, a 24-year-old player sitting in front of you with about 10 other journalists and them all looking to get their own line or their own angle, they're all operating for a wealth of different media outlets that all have different needs or desires. Um, so that's my fairly comprehensive answer to that. <laughs> no, that's great. That's really interesting. Mickey, go on, Mickey. Yeah. No, no, no. It was just on the PR when you were saying the PR stuff, which is reminding I mean, we're lucky. Look, I don't, I, I suppose, I, I don't go to a lot of those kind of um, commercial launches, the, you know, the launches where a player is rolled out and there's a bunch of lads. I've had, obviously, you've had plenty of deals with, with PR companies. And to be fair to them, most of the time they're trying to help both sides and they're kind of, they can be caught in the middle. But I do remember, I do remember interviewing, um, I, I won't say who it was, but it was, it was a Dublin footballer um, of current vintage good a few years ago. And it was in relation to in relation to a particular product. Now, I think the I think the trade-off was I I think there was a picture of the guy wearing a jersey, or there might have been a little line at the bottom or something. It was fairly harmless anyway. But I remember I remember meeting him at his the the, the, the arranged places, his J Club. So I met him at the J Club. The PR person hadn't arrived yet. So we were shooting the breeze as you do. Lovely fella. As you'll find with most guys, I mean one of the things that's happened, I think, with this distancing um, is that, um, I mean, there was social distancing going on between the media and GA journalists long before this. Uh, <laughs> but, like, you find that they're absolutely, I mean, some of the dubs are some of the most impressive guys I've ever met. And, and like, really, really good lads, like, you know, really yeah. good fellas. But anyway, this particular fella would fall into that category. Grand lad, good shooting the breeze about this, that, and the other. So they, they took the, anyway, the PR person landed in, took the photographs, and said, uh, well, what, where, where do we go? What do we do? And I said, sure, what, what do you want to do? Like, and he said, should we just go up to this bar up the road here? So we went up, I said, our grand jet, was on lunchtime. So we went up anyway and sat in. And we sat in, and it was his local. So we were sitting inside, and these two PR people were with us, right? And this is the first time this, is, this had ever ever happened. So I, I was like, well, how's this going to play out now? So, so one of them says, well, uh, Michael, this is X and X is Y. Have, have you met before? And I said, well, just met there about 20 minutes ago in a car park. Like, yeah, I, we described yeah. were fine, like, right? So, right, okay, okay, okay. Now, she turned to the player and said, is there anything you don't want Michael to ask you? Any any issues you don't want to call? I'm like, sitting here, like. And he says, not really, no. And I mean, even in my head, I was kind of thinking, have I, after doing a day and a half or two days of research, missed something here? Yeah. Um, but I said, no, 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 okay, that's fine. So I'm just going to go up and get a, a, a glass of water or something. So I said, oh, you want that? He said, are you getting your whatever glass of water or something? So anyway, he goes up to the bar and the other two are sitting there anyway. And whatever, look up, they give your man is chatting away to the barman. It's his local, of course, you know. So he's chatting away. There's a couple of lads in there. And whatever, look up, they give anyway. She says, um, there's, a, there's a mark on his glass. There's a mark on his glass. Mark on his glass, yeah. Should I go up and tell the barman to give him a fresh glass? There's a mark on his glass. <laughs> and I kind of went, lads, you're not going up to his local barman in his local pub and saying, Give this man a new glass that's dirty. 
stall the ball where you are now and sit down and relax. And the, so they said, grand. Uh, so they were sitting there anyway, and the man comes back and we start to, and she said, and she said we're just going to sit, I, I, we're just going to, you know, we, we won't sit in, but we'll just, we'll just stay here at a, you know, basically eavesdropping. So they moved away. I'd say they lasted, this will tell you now about my dynamic interviewing style. They lasted, I'd say, about 10 minutes before they just packed up and headed away. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here. Like. <laughs> make, make, make. It was yeah. genuinely bizarre. No, that was a, that was a very rare, that I, I've never experienced that. Like yeah. that. But like that. You, you don't, I do know that that would be, that would not be uncommon, uh, particularly in professional sport. Um, but Declan is right. Declan, sorry, I've gone off on the right whole tangent there, but no, he's right fundamentally. You have to, you kind of have to go digging yourself, and you know it's fine. We, and that's the other thing. We don't. I don't think journalists want things served up on a plate either. Um, I think you just want a natural interaction with people. Is kind of it. And even uh, that natural interaction wasn't necessarily. There. I mean, I'm in this thing. I started this crack in '97, '98. So I mean, he mentioned Paddy. God rest him. I mean, the thing about Paddy that time with Kerry was. Paddy was such a large and light personality. There was a, there was a, there was a cohort, and Kerry didn't want Paddy to have the Kerry job because they felt his personality would overwhelm the post, and he just wasn't a safe pair of hands. So his reaction to that was to completely subsume his own personality, and by extension, the personality of the entire team. I mean, those press mornings around Killarney used to be hilarious. You'd go, you'd go over to try and talk to a fella, and he'd kick the ball away and run 40 yards on the field after the ball, yeah. and you'd be sort of like. I don't really particularly want to be treated like a complete Egypt, like, you know, so I'm just mm -hmm. not going to come here anymore. Yeah. You know, there's plenty more ways I'll be treated like an Egypt during the week rather than voluntarily coming down to be treated like an Egypt. <laughs> so, you don't have to leave the comfort of your own house for that either. <laughs> you don't have to go straight the door. So, do, you, do, you, do you feel like for those product launches, for instance, because a lot of the times now you, you see that players don't come out and speak unless it's for their own benefit as regards uh, a sponsorship event or a product launch. Like, can you feel a bit used in that situation then that you know that they're there just because they're trying to push their new Avamore milk sponsorship or whatever it is? I'll, I'll, I'll answer this one just because, you know, I probably would have been to more of them in the last, say, five years than, than Michael would have in, in fairness, right? So Michael's always had that, He's he's one of the gilded few, the Sunday journalists that you know, get to steeple the fingers a wee bit and think, you know, for a few days. I never, I, I, I've never been known to steeple fingers. <laughs> I'll be, be going back to that point in a very forceful way when you're done with your... With your now. Dr. So, Evil. <laughs> uh, so, so, like, you know, I was on the um, the Daily Beat uh, for right way, like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of I've changed my own work and practices, and I'm sort of I'm a freelance for a, a number of different outlets. But so, but at the time when I was on the Daily Beat for the Belfast Telegraph, it would be, it didn't matter what you had in the paper this morning. It was well, what do you got today? And a lot of the time, those launches were absolutely and not 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 even going to say unnecessary, but they were manna from heaven. Like you know, they, they were just perfect right i get to go along and there's a kit launch or whoever you know and then that will do me for maybe the next two three days because a lot of the time when you're at your own devices there's an awful lot of ingenuity thinking on the hoof and generating ideas and just throwing it all out on the day and then having to just start all over again so they were they're, they're absolutely uh so 
for, for the lads that are still on the daily beat, like, you know, they're necessary. Like, you know, you, you just couldn't survive day by day just thinking up of a new idea and having to play that out within the eight or ten hours or however long you give yourself to do your day's work, like, you know. Um, do you feel used? No, because, I mean, you're getting away in the smoke, like, you know, too, in, in a sense. Like, do you feel it's entirely worthwhile? No. You know, it's 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 just about it's a, it's just about it scrapes by on a pass mark. You know, um, nobody's entirely satisfied. Uh, everybody has the same stuff in the paper, um, and for those that kind of turn their nose up at it either, like you know, I'd like to see you operating on the same pressures uh, of producing the same amount of copy under the same time structures. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you, I'm quite interested because. In, in some like do you think the players and the managers understand the, the dynamic uh, of the, the the media and the game because it makes perfect sense to me and it always has if I look at Premier League or whatever it is that the reporters and the journalists need the players and the management uh, to do interviews because they need you know a scoop for their newspaper or they need to write an article or analysis but then the players and the managers obviously need the journalists because that feeds into the promotion of the games and uh, uh, the, 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 the lifting and the interest in the media, which is a direct, like the media is in some ways a direct voice of the people, of the fans. And in, in ways, professional sports kind of understand that dynamic. But do you, Mick, do you think that the GA, do they understand that dynamic or they just choose to kind of ignore it? I think it's I think it's slightly more complex than professional sport because you can draw a fairly straight line between the um, the commercial industrial complex, if you like, of professional sport and the media. You know, one helps to support the other um, to to a very to a to a large degree. I mean, I'll put it this way: when you look at the Premier League, like the Premier League teams don't need people coming in the gate. They they will get they will get by with their commercial revenue. Whereas if you look at GA, for example, forty nine percent of the GA's revenue last year, for example, came through the turnstiles. Twenty odd percent came through media. So it's a different dynamic there straight away. I mean, in terms of the of the GA's relationship, understanding, engagement with the media, we're talking about something you can go back so so long with this, and it's roughly. There, there's always a tension because you have a professional media and what chooses at times to look at itself as an amateur organization. At times we, mm. we're, we're, we're very quick to kind of acclaim the professionalism of the GAA in different regards, but sometimes then the, the GAA can be very quick to grab onto that amateur thing as well, particularly when it comes to dealing with the media. Um, but I mean, you look back, I mean, there's always been friction. I mean, you can go back a hundred odd years. I mean, you, you go back to the early part of the 20th century, one of the GA's big issues was the media weren't giving the GA enough coverage. They weren't getting enough stuff in the newspapers to promote their, their, their games. So their response was to form, their, they created their own newspaper for a while called the Gaelic Athlete. So like, you know, you, you had that at that time. You come forward to now, there's no shortage of, um, there's no shortage of space there's terabytes, yards, hours of, of airtime, digital space, print space given that can be given to Gaelic games if if the if the opportunity is there to give and if the engagement is there. I think what it comes down to 
particularly the inter- and we're talking really, I suppose, at the inter-county level rather than the local level, um, yeah. is that the media, the media is something that, that managers can control, or at least they feel it's something that can be controlled in the sense that if we decide that we're only going to deal with the media on our terms, i.e. I'm going to say we're going to have this media day three weeks before and you're all going to come and you're all going to get your bit. And frankly, I don't really care what you get. We're going to give you, but we're going to give you this two hours and we're going, we're not, it's not going to be said we didn't, right? So that's, that, that's one, that's one level of it, right? So that's, that's what happens a lot now. And that's fine. I mean, to be, I'm a bit, I'm sure Declan probably the same. I don't particularly get hit up one way or the other. If fellas want to talk, they can talk. The last thing I want to do is to sit down with a guy who's been almost press ganged into sitting down with me. You know, uh, if I get the sense at all that a fella is humming and hawing, I'll, I'll pull myself out of it. I'll go, nah, look at your grand. You don't worry about it. Like, you know, if I feel that it's going to be something that's going to be pressing on him, uh, I won't, I won't want to do it either because it's, it's not a good, it's not usually not a good result. Um, so it's a difficult sort of a thing. So you have that professional amateur thing all the time going on. In terms of sort of um, the, the use of it, I think always and ever, I think anybody who engages with the media, they're not doing it for the media's benefit, I don't think. I think there has to be a, a, something coming to you that's of use, right? And in a GA context, that can be quite limited. That can be quite limited. But sometimes, again, I think as you get older, I mean, Declan mentioned Darren Hughes there. I remember having a conversation, man, I mean, we're talking 20 years ago now with Jared Burns. Jared had just retired around this time. Now, it was around 2000, 2001. And I remember Jared saying, like, and I mean, for people who may not remember Jared as a player, he played for Armagh since the early 80s. So through the knockout, like, there'd be years where Armagh had one match. But he was one of the, himself, and I suppose the Grimleys, Declan wouldn't have been, and Jared Houlihan would have been the iconic mm-hmm. Armagh mm-hmm. players of that era. Mm-hmm. But I remember, mm-hmm. I remember Jared saying Joy to me, economy. after he'd retired, he said, you know, doing a newspaper interview like with Armagh, you might only get one call in the year. And you do it, and it was almost like a little event in itself because, yeah. you know, you did it and then your mother would probably cut it out and put it away in the paper and it would be something you'd look back on later. And, you know, it struck me and it's often struck me since and it's something that players and managers don't think of in these terms. And I understand why. But it's a snapshot of someone's life in their 20s or something like that. Yeah. A really mm-hmm. special, rare, unusual time in their life. It's almost like a little time capsule you can look back on if you want to engage with it in those terms. Yeah. You know, yeah. and most you know, of the time, like if you if you go to a I would say a daily newspaper thing, okay, the questions are different, but that's because the, the demands are different, and there's nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> if you sit down with the likes of me most of the time, it's going to be a, maybe a different kind of chat, and that's fine too. There's no there's no better or worse than those two scenarios, but just that, that idea of sort of looking at it as something. Well, I'm going to do this now, and. You know, it's something for, and I get a nice picture taken, and my mother will be delighted with it. And I'll ask them, can they can they send on the pictures if they're nice? That often happens. You'd often get a phone call from the player one. Geez, that was nice. Could could you get the photo? Could they get a copy of the photograph? I know about it at all. You know. So there's little small. What did the fella to describe? It's almost like psychic karma. It's like something you can look at the media and some of your engagement with the media if you're relaxed enough to do it. It's something that's actually it can do you good. It can actually do good, but it's not for everybody. And I think journalists, as as normal, regular Joes, pardon me, Joe, every Joe is regular, but like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, normal guys, we understand 
if someone wants to do something, you do it. If you don't want to do it, that's, that's, that's cool, that's fine. I think where the friction comes is when you feel someone is forcibly being restrained from doing something that would be quite normal and natural for them to do, and it wouldn't bother them one bit, and it might actually benefit them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you say, Mick, because we spoke back in, I think it was 2015, just before I went to India, and I was involved as the coach with the London senior football team, and that concept of a snapshot of your life is quite interesting. And I have to say, I enjoyed it. You know, it was an enjoyable experience, looking through your career, getting your thoughts on stuff, um, and also doing a little bit of the pictures and stuff like that. There's a professional photographer, and he's snapping away, and you're like posing, you know, in different ways. I was over in the QPR first team training ground, and, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a funny but enjoyable experience. And I, I think it matters how you approach it and maybe when players retire maybe they might look back and say like I certainly did do you know what I wish I had just enjoyed the whole journey more just in general I just just wish I had enjoyed everything just relaxed a little bit and Joe did you so your your brother the great Benny Coulter from County Down how how did he approach the media yeah he he loved talking to journalists Uh, he, he he thrived on it actually and uh, you know he was always on the phone speaking to journalists before before big games, and uh, mm-hmm. you know he he was always the, the journalists always you know asked him questions and he gave them straight answers, and uh, I think mm-hmm. it helped him kind of perform better on the day because it, it gave him a little bit of a release too. You know it got him away from the football pitch, and he spoke freely. So yeah, I, th- I think there are players that you know that like talking to journalists because they know themselves. It helps them, you know, it helps them perform better on the day. Uh, but also, you know, it gives them a bit of, you know, recognition as well. And the newspapers, local recognition. And they like that too. So, yeah, yeah um, I, think, I think it does help the players. Yeah. De- Declan, what, what do you think about, because, like, I was a manager, but a very different situation. So the approach that I took was that media, yeah, come, come our way. Come our way towards <laughs> London, because it'll help mm. to build a kind of, a bit of excitement around the team or around the county and the promotion will actually help. But on the other hand, if I was manager of Dublin and like Jim Gavin was and stuff, I would, okay, I wouldn't be as forceful or extreme as his approach, but I might be thinking, well, you know, these interviews are great and a bit of hype, but all, I couldn't really give a damn about that. And my job is to make sure that Dublin win all Ireland. So I don't really care about this journalist looking for his, 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 you know, mm, his mm. interview or so. Now, you know, and, and most of it all changes due to circumstance. Uh, I mean, right now, you could probably lift the phone to most most inter-county players right now and ask mm. them if they could uh, do a Zoom call or a Skype with you in an interview. And they will say, absolutely, because <laughs> they're not under the restrictions. They're not in that uh, bubble where they're training three nights a week and, and away for weekends, camps and stuff like that. Right now, you see players popping up everywhere in podcasts and, uh, you know, Skype calls with, say, the BBC and RT and all of that. There, there's no problem right now. Uh, I remember actually one time speaking to a player after a game and it was made known to me by the PRO of that county that they were very displeased with this because that was not the player selected to be up for interview. And the funny thing about it is, like, I have yet to actually find a player that uh, 
they genuinely didn't want to actually speak. We're not saying actively wanted to speak to the press, but would have been extremely uncomfortable with it or didn't want. Now, and no doubt some of them do exist. But you go away on, let's say, an All-Stars tour, or you're away, say, on international rules duty or something like that in Australia, you ask a player, uh, can I speak to you, you know, Benny exactly, for example, was one of the great ones there, because Benny knew that, you know, a nice picture of him away in Australia, playing for Ireland, what does that not look, you know, why not, like, I mean, this is a great thing, uh, but that player I, I told you about earlier, that this was just this great imposition, then actually, <laughs> Uh, a distant relative of them then approached me in a shop then about a week later and said, you know, how much they enjoyed reading because they'd never seen an interview with this person before. So the family was okay with it and he was okay with it, but just the layers of command and just the uh, role of how people think that what the responsibilities are as a PRO have conflicted completely. Um, they've just got out of hand, really, like, you know. Um, but, yeah, look, you know, it depends on their situation at the time. Like Jim Galvin might say, there's no need for these people uh, in the press. People know enough about them. They're okay to talk from late September to you know middle of January. Let that be the time. It all depends. Personally, personally, uh, when yourself, you know, when you were, you boys were with London and they. Uh, before that, when you reached the the kind of final under Paul Coggins, like I thought that was so brilliant. Like because you had all these people, like the Butlers and uh, Killian Furs and all these Lorca Mulvies all landing over and playing football for London, and the stories were absolutely brilliant. And to my mind, uh, I'd probably rather read one of those features than if, say, for example, Bernard Brogan was doing his fifteenth interview of the season. You know, that's all. It's it's all over. The Bernard Brogan of 2020 season, whatever you know, has been told here. I want to hear something a wee bit more quirkier, uh, something a bit better. I mean, <laughs> I'm sitting here in my house, right, and we built it. I sort of took on this with different tradesmen than I knew anyway, right, back in in 2015. We built this house, but. One of my oldest friends was the bricklayer on it, right? And uh, there was some reason that Joe McMahon from Throne, his name came up in conversation or else he was in the back page of, of something or other of Irish news that day. And this guy has no interest in football. He would never go to a football game. But he turned around to me and he said, say, oh, big Joe, he still likes the cowboy suppers anyway. Uh, and I said, what's that? What, what do you mean with the cowboy suppers? What that was was... A number of years previously, Joe McMahon had gone to uh, play for Ireland in Australia. He sat down beside Paddy Heaney, who was writing for Irish News at the time. And Paddy Heaney says, geez, you know, we're on this flight here. It's 13 hours, Joe. Would you mind we spend half of it, half of one hour uh, chatting and giving an interview? And Joe and Paddy sat and had a, a very agreeable chat. During it, Joe was telling how he had lost so much weight since he was a student at St Mary's and how he had knocked on the head this cowboy supper habit. And Paddy wrote the piece up. Uh, the cowboy supper was prevalent in the piece. And that's what your man took away. You know, this guy who doesn't watch any football, he probably wouldn't even flick on the telly to watch a game and fall like It just would bore him. He might watch the Sunday game. But his father drew him his attention to this piece about this guy who had the guard down and was willing to talk about something a wee bit other than how they think they're going to get on at the weekend 
And that's what, to me, uh, that's the magic of GA reporting. I mean, you look at what do people want out of GA reporting now, right? Uh, there is a whole forensic side of it and the tactical side of it. That has definitely got a, a part. But I think in the main, people love storytelling. They love Con Houlihan. They love what Con was able to do and just telling a couple of yarns and stitching a couple of good, really good lines that he heard in the pub. And I think that that kind of style of storytelling never, ever goes out of fashion. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of links into my next question. And, and just to give a very quick background around it for just for listeners who, who aren't aware. So Declan, to, to, to you, Donegal, obviously a brilliant team. Um, haven't been massively successful down through the years, had one All-Ireland win. Um, Kevin Cassidy was a, an iconic player, really, for, for Donegal, just by, probably just by the way that he played and the character that he is, and he still is, you know, and even his big tree trunk quads and legs, you know, he's, he's an iconic figure, really, in the game. Jim McGuinness was a young manager and uh, a former player, played with Kevin, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, uh, and took over, in, mm-hmm. yeah, took over in 2011. Um, and they were very successful in that year. Kevin Cassidy scores uh, uh, an extra time, with unbelievable booming point in Crow Park against Kildare, I think in the quarterfinal mm-hmm. it might have been. And then they nearly turned over the dubs in the semifinal. Um, and at that point, then in that winter, then you wrote a book uh, called called "This Is Our Year." Fantastic book, and I think it, as you said, it's it's a storytelling book, really. Um, and and Kevin then obviously did a piece with you, or did an interview with you, and was actually quite complimentary of Jim McGuinness and and his time with Donny Gall. Um, but unfortunately, Jim didn't see it that way, and and you know to to. Cut a long story short, Kevin was dropped from the squad. Donegal went, go on to win the All-Ireland the following year. Um, do you ever feel any guilt about that, the part that you would have played in, in that story that Kevin Cassidy never won his All-Ireland medal? Um, Bosley question, Kieran. Anyway, I like the way you put it. <laughs> and, and, and I'm glad we're all on Zoom because I can see Mick Foley's eyebrows just hitting the ceiling <laughs> and coming back there. <laughs> but I, it, it is, it's funny that you ask me this now in fairness because uh, a guy in Gaelic Life, Frank Craig, had spoke to me for an hour about this uh, a few weeks back and, and they produced a, a big feature about it because it's getting up to nearly 10 years now from when the project was started, which I suppose was the winter of, of 2010 when I would have lined up all the various different players in each county and the Calvin management, um, which was uh, amazed that a management team would take part. But then again, you know, Val Andrews and Terry Highland are sort of special people anyway, you know. Um, As part of that, you say about Calvin giving me an interview, like, you know, the process of that book was consistently being on the phone to these guys. Like, you know, you're on the phone to them maybe once a week and you're meeting them every two, three weeks. Uh, it became apparent to me from the start that Kevin's story was going to be something else because I just could see what my own eyes, what was happening with Donegal throughout Division 2 uh, campaign. I actually told someone, and we were, I was at a, a funeral in, in Temple where I'm from in mid-March and told someone to put a few pounds on Donegal to win Ulster because I could sense what was going on behind the scenes. But So I was constantly in touch. I was going up to Guido every 
three, four weeks or so, uh, that intensified then over the championship. So I got a full sort of three sixty degrees picture of what was happening. Now, God, you asked me, did I feel any guilt? Uh, the, all I wanted to do at the time, and I would have spoken to Michael too about it, was the was the uh, the thought behind it was. And people are having the same conversations now as they were then. Like, you know, these conversations of there's no colour in the game anymore. Uh, there's no characters. You know, the whole character is gone out of the game. And you see, you know, people like, say, for example, Joe, Joe Brady would, would say that. And I just think it's the biggest load of nonsense ever. I mean, you can go back over the newspaper, say, in 1992, 93, this golden age where everyone was like Oscar Wilde with their bon vivants and their quips in the dressing rooms and so on like and you go and try and find uh, a plethora of really interesting revealing interviews in the newspapers they aren't there like you know but anyway this was the point and what i found was with all the characters you had say for example paddy cunningham uh, he was a man who was suffering with a diagnosis of crohn's disease mm. and how he was actually finding his way through that year Aidan Carr, right uh, this happened to be the 20th year anniversary of Down winning the All-Ireland and his father winning the All-Ireland. Like, I mean, then his grand-uncle Barney Carr had managed the team to All-Irelands. Like, you know, and yet Aidan was suffering through, with injury right through that season. So, I mean, it wasn't just Kevin. Uh, this was uh, Barry Owens, like a two-time All-Star that was being made captain of Fermanagh for the first time ever. A complete hero in the county and yet all his teammates were walking out and 11 people walked out in a panel throughout the year. You know, they just kind of didn't treat Barry uh, the way they should have. And you, you had, you Kevin, had, right, obviously, you had, then you had right, Ricey and Dick Clark and uh, also see Dick, uh, Mick Conlon was the Mickey, Mick Conlon was the very goalkeeper, but he fell out of favour. So Danny Devlin sort of took up the baton then, uh, for the Derry side. Yeah, um, I don't think I've left anyone out there, down. Um, Donegal, yeah, no, that was it. And I suppose people can, right, okay. Kevin did his bit the same as any other player, right? Some managers completely ignored it, never looked at it, uh, wouldn't have a notion. One manager, when I rang looking for an interview after giving me a mouthful, and that was okay uh, <laughs> because he maybe didn't come out that great in it. Um, and before the book itself, the physical copy of the book had actually reached Ireland. Uh, Jim McGuinness had pulled in the Donegal squad and told them that he had read the whole thing cover to cover and how insulting it was to them, uh, to the different players in the group, and that all of them were banned from uh, going attending uh, with a series of book launches. One of them was in Guidor, and they were banned from attending that. Uh, there was... <laughs> Or let's just say a former GA politician that was sitting outside the pub that night kicking names of those that were going in in attendance from Guidor, which I think is just appalling and pathetic. Um, Jim was the only one that reacted in the way he reacted. And uh, at the same time, Jim and PJ McGowan made their way up to uh, Kevin's place of work, his, the school that he taught him, and asked him back at Easter time. They asked him back into the panel. Kevin had a thought about it and Kevin turned it down. I'm not saying whether it's on Kevin. Of course, on the day that they won and in the final, like I mean, I was distraught that he hadn't got it. I was distraught that he hadn't got an All-Ireland medal, that he, his career and his efforts for Donegal richly deserved. 
But there's like I mean, any time I ever spoke to him, he you know, he assured me that he's entirely fine with this. And we've gone over it in print since uh prior to going to our meeting cross again. And just because Kevin holds a different view than the majority of people might doesn't mean he's wrong. It just kind of marks him out as a bit of a special person, very strong minded, knows his own mind, knows what's important to him. And sometimes people can get a wee bit uh, freaked out by that, like that they just that he doesn't his beliefs don't tally with theirs. Did 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 you did it work for Jim McGuinness? I don't know. I mean, I, I, in the context of like, did he win that all Ireland because Gavin Cassidy was gone from the uh. panel? No, not not that. But for instance, I'm just trying to think from a manager's point of view, like maybe it was a way of building a siege mentality and us against everybody else. And we can even do without somebody as iconic as, as, as Kevin Cassidy in the team. And it may not be something that he would have chosen, but it could be a circumstance that's placed in front of you and you say, okay, this is not an opportunity, but it's something that I'm going to deal with and get the best out for the team, dealing with well, difficult circumstances. Kieran, to be honest with you, I, I, I have my thoughts on it, but I'd much rather hear your thoughts as, as a man with the coaching experience you have. And I'll tell you why. Uh, the Donegal-Dublin game from 2014 was on, uh, was on replay there recently, right? And one thing that I noticed, uh, I think it was... Um, Paul Clark had, had told maybe Kieran Shannon in an interview last year, last summer, that you know when Jim became the Dublin manager, one of the things that he wanted was that when you were substituted, you had to take his hand, you had to shake his hand as you left the field, right? But in that game, that Dublin-Donegal game in 2014, right, when I was watching it, I was kind of looking out for different wee tells. You can see various players, I'm not going to, Name the names. If people want to watch the game back, they will see this. Players are taken off in that game, and they know obviously a player's taken off, another player's been taken off in the big game. Then the camera goes and them coming off the field, and the amount of head shaking and the body language off them was unbelievable. Like, you know, sitting back then into the stand and shaking the head, like, oh, he's got that wrong. And, you know, and you could see that Jim Gavin had to take a step towards them for them to take their hand. And then, yet, everything allowed. That defeat allowed Jim Gavin to completely put his stamp of authority on this Dublin team. And then they went on to achieve what they achieved. Now, whether Jim needed a moment like that to do that, mm. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I doubt it. I doubt it because I think he already had the meeting out of his hands because they had spent years uh, under the, under, you know, like a Tyrone and Armagh had their foot on Donegal's throat and all of a sudden, uh, Donegal were top of the pile so I don't really I think that even in his own book he talked about how he needed to refine his attacking game and needed like an arrow of you had someone at the front carrying the ball and you always had two men coming in behind running an angle to support and it was that template that they took and you could see it for the first time I think against Derry in 2012 up in Badly Buffet this performance that was just unbelievable I mean Anthony Thompson spent the entire game running from 21 to 21 because he was marking Conleith Gilligan, who is one of Derry's most creative players. And Conleith and I would be friendly. And he says that day, like Thompson's role was not even to play ball. It was just to tire me out, run 21 to 21 to 21 to 21. And that just annihilated finished Conleith's game, you know? Yeah. Sorry, I'm way off it. But I mean, you know, <clears throat> you could tell us that better. 
Do you want to come in on that? No, I, I, I mean, I, I can remember, obviously I'll remember all from that, that time. I mean, the one thing that I've always thought about the whole, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, the Kevin Cassidy, Jim McGuinness, this is all year sort of um, story is that Declan's book is going to come out of this. It, it's, it's like, it'll stand the test of time. That's the first thing that has to be said. Like, it's an excellent book. Great stories in it, but more than great stories, it gives you a proper insight into the life of an intercounty player in that particular era. Um, insofar as what happened, that's, and that's the first thing. Whatever happens about Kevin Cassidy, Jim McGuinness, all this stuff, like that stuff is, to me, that stuff is kind of a bit, it's not flittery to Jim McGuinness and Kevin Cassidy, but it pales in comparison to the importance of the book itself and, and, and the insights and the, the quality of the book itself. And I think that needs to be recognised. Like the, in, in terms of the, of the Jim McGuinness thing, I mean, the only thing you could say about it is that maybe he felt that after years and years of Donegal um, sort of getting really close and then kind of skittering off the rails when they're so close to something, um, he felt that this idea, maybe he saw something in this idea of taking Cassidy's apparent sort of breach of the contracted rules that, that, that everybody had signed up to and saying, right, it doesn't matter who it is. If you if you breach this thing, you're gone. And that's the long and the short of it. But that only has a very short shelf life, as is reflecting the fact that they tried to go back and get him in Easter. I think what for me, and I I don't I don't know whether I don't know whether I should even kind of go here because I, I, I think it's a I, I think it doesn't it doesn't reflect well on, 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 on the man, but like I think the thing you, you ask about whether was this a calculated thing from McGuinness, I think it went further because the very fact that in the, his moment of triumph. After an All-Ireland football final, he walks into a press conference and the first thing he does is ask for Declan to leave. That, to me, is just absolutely appalling behaviour. Absolutely appalling. It's just, in, on every level, it makes no sense. But it, and in, 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 on a human level, it's atrocious. Um, and, I mean, I wasn't in the room at the time, but, like, the idea that if this was a calculated sort of a tactic then why would it still be a tactic half an hour after you win in All-Ireland? You forget that. Like, that stuff really doesn't matter now. But it clearly mattered to him. So we go back again. We were talking before about this aspect of control and controlling the controllables. And that book, perhaps, and I'm speculating obviously because I don't know what I meant, but perhaps that book and Cassidy's role in that was a breach of that sense of control that McGuinness would have had. And anybody who was involved in that breach of control is automatically, again, you go back, I think always oh, the great coaches are very black and white in the way they see things. So maybe in this, it's just black and you're gone. Yeah. You know? It, 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 that doesn't excuse his behaviour, by the way, because we're all human beings and we all have jobs to do. And at the end of the day, I don't care if it's an All-Ireland final. It's a game of football. And go back to the Cassidy thing about not getting the medal. I tell you what. There's plenty of fellows who won all Ireland medals in Donegal who'll be forgotten a far, far, far quicker than Kevin Cassidy will. And that's what counts. I think it's interesting because if you think of, when you say, Mick, about the control, <clears throat> when you think of Alex Ferguson's career and the difficulty he had with media, like over a kind of a, a non-story really about his son, and then to, to hold that grudge with the, the BBC over a, whatever, 20-year year period. Um, but 
you know, at the end of the day, he'll say, well, he's successful and people love Alex Ferguson and probably love him more now than he than even back at that time. But at times he was a very difficult person to, to deal with. And Declan, it's interesting when you say about the Jim Gavin thing about the shaking hands with the players and all, to me that encapsulates perfectly about how managers can have all these different things in their setup about the culture, the environment, the respect, the, the protocols and all that kind of stuff. But essentially, players get disappointed. Players are happy when they're winning. They're, they're pissed off when they're taking off or they're losing. So all that stuff really matters. But ultimately, it's about, you know, having good players and, and winning games. And sure, the, the, the setups the setups will be great and happy as long as, <laughs> as, long as uh, you're winning games. And those kind of protocols and stuff don't matter. While, while you're, you're, you're getting disturbed by your son or daughter, Declan. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, boys. Sorry. No, that's grand. That's grand. Yeah, so ju- just, just that point that you, you can have all these uh, protocols and procedures and you have to shake the manager hands and everything like that. But mm. in the white heat of battle, those stuff kind of go out the window because the player's pissed off and he's, as they're t- being taken off. And, a, and a, I suppose a win, a, ultimately a winning camp is a, is a happy camp, mm-hmm. regardless of yeah, um, history, uh, winners writing history and all that. I mean, uh, you revert to the type like under severe stress. Um, and it's, you know, you see it all the time. I mean, you, you know, uh, even just the, say, for example, Donegal in the 2014 final, like they were trailing Kerry and um, Kerry had the football in their own half, like and Donegal were all retreating into their own half and they needed to do something. They were so ingrained in the style of play that they just uh, couldn't break out of that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, again, uh, you know, I'd even appreciate Joe's thoughts on that, like, you know, because he's, He's a man yeah, who's, um, who's on the truth. Yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, if you if you look at Donegal, you know, we talked about how the game has changed. I think I think one of the reasons why Donegal won that Ireland was because uh, because of their tactics, because of their defence. Uh, I thought defensively, you know, they were excellent. And Jimmy McGuinness kind of changed changed the game, if you like. He he made a revolution there in Donegal. So I think that was the prime reason why they won the Ireland. But also I think physically. And, you know, when you read Jimmy McGuinness's book as well, and he talked about how he pushed the players to their limits, you know, I think that was one of the reasons uh, why Donegal become so successful. Um, and also, just going back, you know, you want your best players to be playing on your team. If you, you, if you want to win All-Ireland, you want to have your best players there. And, you know, of course, Kevin Cassidy was one of the best players for Donegal. There was no doubt about that. So there was kind of an element of risk from Jimmy McGuinness of kind of throwing him off the squad. Um, obviously, Kevin, Kevin uh, had the choice to go back again. But, um, but I think if, if you're doing that, and if, if you are throwing him off the squad and you think it benefits the team or you think it benefits the mission, well, then you're going to have to do it. I'm sorry for that individual player, but you're, you're just going to have to do it. Uh, and I think also maybe, maybe some players now might think twice about you know, releasing autobiographies during their playing playing career you know when they're playing for a football team and you're given information about what happens inside the changing rooms or whatever not, not particularly talking about that book but just in general uh, I think managers managers don't really like that so you can kind of see it from Jimmy McGuinness's point point of view 
so yeah um Declan, not definitely in some ways like it was a huge controversy but as as Mick said it was a it was a brilliant book like I was looking at a review on the, the Irish Times it said uh, the book is raw and honest just like football itself for supporters who love the game and value a greater understanding of it Vogue has done some service this is our year is an inspired title but his book could just as easily be called this is our sport so it, it, it was critically acclaimed. Blushing here, Kieran. Blushing. <laughs> Mick, I have to ask you before we move on, because I know we, we, geez, look, we could talk for forever. I have to ask you about, um, and I want to get on to the bloodied fields because it, it, it's a really, really interesting book. Um, but just ask you about Mickey Hart's book. So you did Mickey Hart's book in 2009. Nine, yeah. 2009, yeah. Well, if my memory serves me right, we had most of the book done. <clears throat> and obviously they played Cork and the all earned semi-final lost it. And then we met, I would say, 10 days maybe after the semi-final um, to finish out to finish out the end of the chapter. So we had a conversation. Um, I actually remember, I remember the, the, that end piece in the book. I remember Mickey saying that that was his favourite part. Like, But that last piece of work we did together, he said, was the bit that he really... I think the bit maybe about looking forward and where they were going to go next and stuff. He really, he really liked that, you know? So you obviously in an autobiography, you try and get it as close as possible to the part. You try and capture that person's voice. Claudio O'Shea's book is excellent at that and it captures it absolutely brilliantly. Mickey's way of speaking as, as any, any of these that have dealt with him, he's very verbose. He, he, it's, it's, it's a particular style. So we were trying to do that. Um, so I mean, I went in to do that project with Mickey Hart because because he was Mickey Hart, he was yeah, such an yeah. interesting person at that time, and and I suppose I was kind of at a time in, in my life I was kind of thinking, you know, I, I'd like to, I I think spending a year in the company of this man could be very a very interesting experience. How he thinks about things, try and get beyond maybe a little bit. And I mean, at that time, Mickey was very open with the media. I mean, and Tyrone was was, was quite an open was quite an open shop. Um, but I kind of felt, you know, I I would, I would just love to know how 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 this guy's value system works and, and how it all how it all comes together you know so that was that was a lot of the motivation for me yeah absolutely we can fall into the trap of pigeonholing people and just like players get pigeonholed as regards they're a ga player and they have no interest outside of the game and stuff like that like even for you you guys as sports journalists can be pigeonholed in that you write on ga teams and you're you know, very interested in the game coming up or obsessed about this, uh, you know, the championship and stuff. But like just looking through your your career and on Twitter and stuff, like Declan, you you don't have that you're a journalist, you have that you're a writer on, on your on your Twitter profile. Um pretentious one <laughs> along, along with Pink Pink Floyd uh, uh, profile picture. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, uh, that's only because I just don't tend to put anything. I've only ever put one yeah. picture of myself up on Twitter. I, I, I don't have Facebook. That's just a small yeah, privacy. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. But I think the general point, like, Mick, I was looking through, like, the Kings of September, uh, which it didn't, it won the, the Irish Sports uh, Book of the Year. Um, and I loved the kind of, the mystique around that, 
you know, and the different characters that you were following, and then even like going on to the um, to the bloody field. And I, I haven't read it yet, unfortunately, but just like I was reading about some of the characters and like you can tell us more about it, obviously, but 14 Irish people died in Croke Park. And like I can see James Burke, James Matthews, James Tetchen all crushed, trying to trying to leave the, the ground. Uh, 14-year-old boy John William Scott died. 11-year-old boy William Robinson died. Um, a good Wexford man, Tom Ryan. And I, you, you spoke, I think you spoke to me once previously about, about that individual. Um, so it was a brilliant kind of story behind that event, wasn't it? And and it, it did. It just hit me that these guys are writers. They're not. They're not GA sports journalists. They're writers. And in my mind, there's a difference. Just before Mick even gets onto that book, Greg, because I think that that is the greatest example that you could have pulled out. Uh, was the bloody field. Um, and you say about writer there, and I just come back to what you said to me was. There are days that you feel like a writer. There's absolutely days that you feel. There's days that you feel like a journalist. There's days you feel like a real hack. Uh, but the best days is when you're sitting in front of a computer and you have something really good and you feel like a writer. What Michael did there with the bloody field is literature. It's not a sports book. I mean, you know, you've got the sports autobiography where I started playing at ten for the under twelves and then I was on the McCrory Cup or the Hardy Cup team by the time I was fifteen. And that's all grand, but it's slush. Uh, what Michael produced was literature, and given the fact that it's coming up to the anniversary this year, I'd urge anybody to get it. Um, and I remember reading it myself first and being tremendously affected by the stories and speaking to Michael and saying, you know, you, you probably carry the memory of these people. You're probably linked in some kind of cosmic, and bear with me here, I'm getting California on you here, but is probably linked to the souls in some kind of cosmic effect. And you, you don't take that lightly because at the end of the day, through Michael's work, graves have been uncovered and found mm. and more and more of Ireland's history. And to think it was so recently, you know, it's only coming up to 100 years and so much had been buried or forgotten or, uh, you know, discarded and all that. I mean, you know, people like Michael taking on a project such as that uh, deserves a hell of a lot more than just maybe the royalties accrued from a book. It is our great credit to their name as people, as historians and writers. Yeah, no, I agree. And 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 like Mick, there there was a number of those people up until recently were in unmarked graves, weren't there? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, of the fourteen, um, of the fourteen people killed in Crow Park, we say up when the book came out in twenty fourteen. There was eight, eight people were in unmarked graves. Now, in the course of the, in the course of the research, I I found the graves, um, of seven of them, and found the graveyard for the eight. Um, so, it was there. So you know that that was the situation. Um, when the book was finished. I mean, I can't deny. I mean, I'd be totally honest. I mean, I wouldn't. Definitely doing something like that, doing a book like that, even before um, there's any public reaction, it, it gets in on you, yeah. right? It gets in on you. And then I would, I would comfortably say in the six years since, there hasn't been a month gone by where there hasn't been some kind of Bloody Sunday related 
en engagement, right? And some of that is great, and some of that is is really it's it's really good, and some of it can really really um and I know and again you know I don't want it sounds you know exaggerating it's things are different for everybody but it, it can really um it gets it, it, it it's an emotional um thing it's an emotional thing and it definitely um it, it hits you it hits you in different ways but we had the um yeah so there was eight there was eight unmarked um I, I in the back of my head and it wasn't something that I had actively done anything about but I kind of have gone God, you know, at some point I'd love to do something about the graves, or get. I, I don't even know what, what to do, really. What do I do? There's eight unmarked graves, and it upsets me that there's eight unmarked graves. Uh, a year later, <clears throat> in 2015, um, it just happened that um, Jane Boyle, who was 27 years or 20, she was 29 when she passed away. Um, she was in an unmarked grave, and her family had decided to put a gravestone up. So I, I and I can't remember which came first, the chicken or the egg. But anyway, we, we managed to get in contact and then the GAA were kind of involved as well. So in the heel of the hunt, um, the GAA ended up helping the family to put the gravestone up. And I was kind of in the mix somewhere as well. And out of that came the Bloody Sunday Graves project, which basically was the GAA helping families if they wanted to put up a gravestone for the person who had passed away. So in the case of those eight, two of them, two of them have had no family line left. So we had to, we had to kind of, we, 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 we dealt with that, like John William Scott, the 14 year old, um, who actually lived right across the road from Crow Park. Like you can walk past his house, more, I'd say thousands of people walk past his house every time they go to Crow Park. Um, he had no family left, so we put a little kind of a kneeler, they call it, it's like a small little, there was a gravestone, actually there was a gravestone on his grave, but his name wasn't on it, that was the thing, so we put a kneeler on the front. But the one that kind of um, struck me, and it was only recently, we, we erected um, three in one day last November. Uh, one was from Michael Feary, who was a, an ex-British Army serviceman yeah. who, who died, um, and he, he, we put up a, a grave for him. We put up one for Patrick O'Dowd, who actually sat on the wall between the old cube, what was what is now the cubes extend and the Belvedere sports grounds. But he actually sat on a wall and pulled people over to safety yeah. before he was shot himself and killed. Um, so he's we, we did one for him. But the third one was for the youngest victim, who was Jerome O'Leary, and he was 10. And I got a call, and again, I mean, I'm involved in this all the time, but I, I got a phone call one day. Um, from Kean Murphy in Sidencrow Park, who works in the press office, and Kean like has been incredible in this. You know, I mean, if we're talking about Omar Graves, you couldn't, I couldn't let the moment pass without mentioning Kean. Kean yeah. has been an unbelievable source of energy and invention and attention and real passion to get something done and to help people. Um, he's been incredible on this. But Kean rang me and said, "Listen," he said, "We have no." surviving family for Jerome O'Leary. So look, can you, for the purposes of the gravestone, can you confirm his his name, address, and date of birth for the, the people making the gravestone? Which was, that's fine, no problem. But when I was doing it, I was kind of going, jeez, you know, um, six, whatever it was, back in 2014, I didn't think I'd be here five years later you know, effectively, effectively <clears throat> performing the role of family for a ten-year-old who died, um, who was shot, who was shot like shot off a wall, 
um, in Crow Park at a match. Um, and I remember I t it was a horrible wreck day and all the families had someone to say a few words at the grave. And I said a few words for Jerome. And it was funny. It was kind of like all of those, all of those kind of experiences down the years kind of all came together in one in a way like uh, for me, that, you know, you talk about kind of just the emotional um, impact of this, that I'm, I'm, this is what I'm doing here now. And I mean, I couldn't have been more proud or more privileged to do it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, it's definitely something that, again, without wanting to get too sort of people listening to this and going, off oh, for God's sake. But it, do, it certainly changes you. It, it changes the way you think about things. It changes the way... It changes the way you look at an awful lot of things, you know. Mick, for people who don't know the story, can you just give a quick summary of what actually happened around the event? Well, essentially on the day, um, 21st November 1920 was the day. So that morning, um, the IRA had had staged a series of, of attacks on British spies and agents living around Dublin. And they had they'd actually they'd killed 14. Um, and this is kind of the, the rawest of raw war. You're talking about guys, young fellas who were barely trained in the use of the guns they had in their hands, going in and shooting people at point blank range in their dressing, like these people are in their pajamas, like you know, in, in their bedrooms. Um, so that occurred in the morning. Then in the afternoon, there was a challenge match between Dublin and Tipperary. Um, scheduled for Crow Park that, that day in the afternoon football match it was quite a big game at the time Dublin were a big team Tipperary I always compare them to the Ar to say Armagh in the noughties or maybe Donegal in the, in the in the tens they kind of just they had they had a moment they had they had a they had a four or five year kind of moment where they they kind of upturned everything that would have ever been assumed about them before and they won they won in all Ireland in the end but this is this was a challenge match anyway the game was on um Basically, this, the police, the, a combination of the RIC and the Black and Tans, who were a kind of an, an addition to the, to, 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 to the police force who had been kind of, their numbers were down. And then the auxiliaries, who were another addition to the police force in Ireland at the time. A combination of those three went to Crow Park. Um, it was meant to be a search operation. Basically, stop the game, search everybody in the ground. They were shaking trees just to see. Um, could they find out anything or pick anybody up who might have been involved in the morning? But what ended up happening was the first bunch of police jumped out of the trucks. Uh, if people are familiar with the geography of Crow Park and the surrounding areas, the Canal Bridge, which is just outside what's now the Hogan Stand, the trucks would have stopped there. They jumped out and they immediately started firing on the crowd. Uh, the firing lasted 90 seconds and, <laughs> excuse me, there was 14 people killed. Uh, you're talking uh, three kids. Uh, one woman, um, ten men. Um, you're talking everything from fellows who work for the gas company. Tom Ryan worked for a gas company. You're talking barmen, bar owners, schoolboys. Um, Jane Boyle worked in a butcher shop. Um, the people came from middle class backgrounds, working class backgrounds, extra tenements. Um, every single strata of Irish life at the time was represented. Michael Hogan was killed. He was a farmer below in Grange Moor from Tipperary. Every single, every single corner, and I mean, you, you, the victims are not just Dublin people. Like you had Tipperary, Wexford, Limerick, Dublin. You know, it's this was not an isolated sort of a thing that happened to Dublin. Um, so that was that was the bare bones of what happened on the day, and 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 you know, it, it obviously resonated, it resonated in a huge way with people. And uh, I suppose it was a story that was kind of there, but I mean, 
down the years, the names of the people had been lost, their stories had been lost. The detail of what actually happened on the day, it got kind of distorted and changed. Um, and like, it took me a good four years to start to decide, yeah, I'm going to do this. From the, from the time I got the idea to actually start it, it took me four years and it was another three years doing it. So if you like, it was kind of a seven year process of actually um, doing the thing. But um, yeah, it was, it was all in. It was all in. Yeah, it sounds like a, a big project, difficult project, but very rewarding as, as well in the end. Well, you, you didn't know. Um, like, you never, you never know. I mean, I remember doing Kings of September. It was knocked back by a couple of publishers. I remember going down to the great Pat Spillane. And uh, Pat said to me, you won't be interested in this at all. You won't be interested in five in a row. <laughs> and of course he would like, but he didn't win. He said that. Uh, but um, but I, I a couple of people said that to me around Kings of September. I said, sure, who cares about this story? And I remember when the book, when the bloody feed book was done, I was out for a drink with my brother one evening and a fella came over and he was kind of chatting away, asking, how are you getting on? Are you strange? No, no. Are you working on anything at the moment? And I said, I have an old thing coming out there in the autumn time. Oh yeah, what's that about? And I told him to bloody Sunday, 1920. And he could, there was a pause. And he said, I, I'll, I'll delete all the expletives like, but he said, Who's going to be interested in that? There is nobody going to buy that. There's no interest in that old car. Yeah, Jesus, wasting your time doing that. And he kind of walked off, you know. And I, you know, the way you're often meet players and they'd kind of be telling you what people say to them in public. And sometimes they'd be going to make one. There's no way people behave like that with players. That's desperate. Yeah. Well, I, I was like, Jesus, people do actually behave like this. Yeah. So you never know. So you just go like, and, and, and as Declan will tell you, writing books is not a profitable exercise. So you, you, you go in. You go into it, I always say, you started out as a labour of love, it very quickly becomes a labour, and then you, you hope at the back end of it all that you just do the story some kind of justice, and um, you just let it off then. It's a bit like the Mickey Hart thing, or, or the This Is Our Year bit. Like you just, you just let it off, and you just hope that people find something in it, and you, you, hope, that, you hope that people like it. And it's, it's as needy as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love I loved it. The the whole concept around like the Kings of September where you take an event and you go into the detail about, uh, about that moment in history and you get to know the characters and like at the end of the day, sure, it, it doesn't really matter in the greater scheme of things, but when you're reading the book, you can go so deep into those characters and how they feel and what they did and what they thought. And it's a kind of fascinating look. Well, I always said like about the bloodied fields, and the same applies to Kings of September's Dead. And I'd say this about books anyway. I, I can remember saying it to Declan even about this is our year. I'm sure I said it. That you want to feel the dirt beneath your fingernails. Like You want to feel that level of sort of involvement and engagement. Because the thing with Kings of September is everyone knows how it ends. Well, most people anyway who picked the book up. Yeah. In fact, the second edition that came out had a picture of the goal on the front. So, I mean, <laughs> what's, my, what's the point in me reading this now? I know the results. But that's, that's the challenge. You, you know... Again, I kind of, with that one, that was one of the joys, like when I look back now, that was one of the joys of my life doing that. Like I was, what age was I? That started, I started that in all five. So I was whatever, 28, 29, you know, no ties to bind me really. Like I was in a, I was, I, I was in a, I was in a, I kind of, I was in a, in a me, I was in a relationship at the time, but I had no kids, no mortgage, no nothing. Um, work was going good. And I was scooting around Kerry and Offaly and Dublin and all points, up to Donegal, up to meet Liam Corrins, I remember. 
just meeting these guys and sitting down with them for hours. Like, I mean, I went to Richie Connor's house and we sat out the back for four hours. And that was about average. Like, I mean, I went down to Spillane and I came away with two and a half, three hours. Like, and, and you know, they were all really long, detailed. Most of them were, were very detailed and, and very engaged and coming back. And I remember I had a, I had a list on the wall of all the names and you cross them off every time you got one. Uh, and kind of just gathering all this stuff together and you go away into the National Library and you'll be going through the microfilm like looking at the Kerry man and uh, I remember I'll always remember finding a picture of um, they were going on to Kerry to the World Tour in 1981 to celebrate four in a row they went to Australia and Hawaii and all these places but there was a picture on the front of one of the well, in front of the Kerry man at some stage in 81 of Jimmy Dean and a couple of others wearing iron sweaters that they'd been given for their trip to Australia <laughs> by, you know by Uda Ross the Greatest or someone like that and I was like what so you know you just you were you were kicking over stones and you were finding all this lovely stuff and it was all true yeah you know they were they were there it was there was nothing contrived about any of this you know um, and it was just such a joy and I mean you know of all of them, I mean, the bloody fields has a certain resonance. The heart book has a certain resonance. But the, the kids said, "Oh, I just pick it up and I just it just makes me feel good." Yeah, looking at it because it, it just I suppose the fact that it had been knocked back a few times, um, and it got done. And the, I I thought there was stories there. I t- just thought there was stories there, and there was. Yeah. And that's as Declan will tell you. Like like Declan was talking about Darren Hughes before there. Sometimes you go you go into meet a fella and you don't know you're. You're thinking that this guy is going to be interesting, but I just don't know. But then, you, when you go in and you realise, oh God, that was that was absolutely worth the nine hours I spent on the road to go up and down to see him, or whatever, or the two days I'm going to spend transcribing it. Yeah, it's there's there's it's a great feeling, you know. It's brilliant. Man, we'll finish up just with a quick a few quick ones, Joe. You were going to ask about it, just a few of the characters you 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 came across. De- Declan, your children came in about. Probably about forty minutes ago, and you said that ten minutes time you're going to be done. So <laughs> <laughs> we might have to. We, we there's plenty more we can chat on another day about the the GPA stuff and different analysts. But Joe, you were going to. Yeah, um, it was just. Um, I think it was more to to Daclin, You know, I think last night uh, Sean Cavanaugh was getting a little bit little bit of abuse on Twitter because he referred to Northern Ireland or whatever you want to call it as uh, as the UK. Who's getting a little bit of, bit of abuse, but it's just um, kind of the future of, of the GAA. And you know, there apparently there could be a border poll within 10 15 years or whatever. And the GAA's position, just looking at their position, do you think the GAA should give an official position on, on a border poll as, as a 32 county organization? What's your thoughts on that? It's a really interesting one, Joe. And, and, and myself and Michael actually have talked so much about this, and they. Uh, and it's kind of personal in some ways because like uh, I'm going to say a load of stuff that I've said before in, in other podcasts and, and in print, but from where I'm sitting in my front room, like I'm looking at Monaghan, like I live in South Tyrone and I can see Monaghan, like I'm right on the border. Uh, the town's at McCloy, it's a border town. Um, the club's at Halloo. I help out a wee bit, well, I was helping out last year coaching um, and I'm also involved in a, in a wee bit of uh, underage hurling camogie here too in a new club that we've formed. So I'm right on the border. I know all the sensitivities of this. I even uh, had the temerity to write last year about, at length, a couple of columns about like when the Throne team bus was stopped in that McLeod by an Orange March. And, and you remember the clip of the uh, 
some players were singing come out to black and tans and so on uh, and the, the point I was making about that was that you know this is the Orange Order 20 years previously when there was marches in this town there was trouble there was tension and there was a threat whereas this time round like you know the Orange Order Grandmaster actually waited for the Catholic uh, priest in the town to go into the gates of his house he got out of the car and they both waved at each other before they would even start that march. That's you might think that that's I'm getting away from the point, but that to me is the greatest illustration of just how far society has moved in a border town, which could be highly contentious and not a great place to live. Now what you see is uh, kids, children. Mickey wouldn't like the use of words kids uh, from all face and no face <laughs> getting involved in in the GAA. And that to me is the end goal of it. This like is, I don't believe I could walk into a senior dressing room in this club and ask an awful lot of lads their views on a United Ireland or a border poll because there would be sensitivities. There are guys from other faiths and guys whose, uh, well, I leave it at that. You know, I mean, you know, guys from backgrounds that just would not have countenanced this whatsoever. A generation, a generation or two back now are, are playing Gaelic football and very proud to play that. Uh, it has always been my belief that the GA has what they have in the official guide, the aims and objectives of the association, that they're there and that's grand and it's wonderful for someone living in, say, Wexford to say that this is, this is the way we want it. Uh, but, Joe, you and I both know uh, being from Ulster, that there are an awful lot of sensitivities and nuance about this. Like, and I don't know if people in the north now truly see the GA of look. There are loads of it, and I'm being very careful what I say because there's a lot of people very happy to to jump onto one line uh, and annihilate people for it. I don't know if the GA is a Republican movement now per se anymore. Like, you know, obviously uh, if you go through The Hurlers, that wonderful book written by Paul Rice and the different hijacking of the association by church and the Republican movement off the church and then back again and, and, and so on. Like, you know, the, the, the power struggle from the GA because it was organised in a county by county basis and all the potential that it had, like, you know, to be pushed into a political dogma or belief. Uh, there are people in this county that would say I'm talking complete and utter rubbish. They they just think they just see their Gaelic sport as an extension of their republicanism. Um, and they think that anyone expressing slightly different view doesn't want a United Ireland. And people are very quick then to put you into a uh, pigeonhole you as you were talking earlier here and saying well do you want a United Ireland or not and if you want a United Ireland well then damn it you know we should be singing around of him before every flipping challenge match uh, you know that we play with the club and you should just get behind this you know everything uh, with the long game of a United Ireland is not dependent on everything that you say at that particular time. And I'll tell you what it's not dependent. It's not dependent on whether Sean Kavanagh, a, a businessman, an accountant from the Moy, uses the phrase up here in the UK or not. 
United Ireland is not going to depend on what Sean Kavanagh uses as a term of reference. Uh, I think that initially when I saw that, I'm like anybody else, like sometimes you're on Twitter and all that, you see it and you go, oh, oh, he's going to cop some, some stuff for that. I honestly now think that the pylon that he, he has experienced and is ridiculous. Um, people need to grow up a small bit and people need to stop being so insecure about their republicanism and their nationalism. I, I myself, when I say up here in the UK, I, don't, I just don't. It's not it's just a phrase that I use. But I know exactly. Like, I mean, you know, Sean Kavanaugh pays into the same treasury of tax that I pay into as self-employed men. Uh, and I know exactly where he was going with that when he actually said that Leo Varadkar and the Chia, and we identify more with them. And maybe that's not exactly the words that he used, but I mean, that was the sentiment behind it. Uh, that would be my view on it. I, 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 I don't know. I tend to think that Sean Kavanaugh um, knows his own mind better than most, that he not be affected by that. But I mean, this is the the... This is winter talk on steroids, isn't it? Like, I mean, you know, there's no games on. There's no controversial sending off between Calvin and Monaghan. Nobody's talking about Matty Donnelly's injury. Will he be fit to start in Ballygofay this weekend? So everything is magnified. And just some ridiculous half sentence gets become a thing. I just think it's people need to get a life away. But it's, it's disappointing to see like Tyrone supporters and stuff, even people, fellow county people coming out and absolutely slating them. And <clears throat> I, don't, I don't follow closely, obviously, Northern politics, but like to see Sinn Féin um, politicians, you know, uh, and coming out and saying things, it, it's, I think, immature, a bit ridiculous. And surely they have more, far more important things that they should be looking after <laughs> during this time than, than what Sean Kavanagh says is essentially, uh, uh, you know, a, a correct way of saying what, um, what government that he has to pay taxes into. It, it seems a very strange thing, I think. Well, there's just this uniformity of language that people wish to impose upon you. I mean, I find it ridiculous that, you know, an awful lot of people, uh, I'm not saying there's a Venn diagram where they all fit into the same spot, into the sweet spot of the Venn diagram. But I mean, how many uh, people, when say Rory McIlroy would have given some really deep and revealing interviews and said that he is a Northern Catholic who uses the term Northern Ireland and he sees himself as British. And I mean, I remember at that time, there's a lot of people who all looked very grown up and saying, well, that's fair enough. That's fine by me. Rory can do that. That's Rory's right. And then Sean Kavanagh makes uh, what some people would say slip of the tongue. Other people might say it was just as he sees it. And others might say, well, it was just more, he'd be used to framing things in that way as a businessman in the North. Um, and then get like agitated about this kind of stuff. I mean, no, go out and take a walk, like you know. Mick, we might, we might, we might finish up with one final question, just because our we keep taking loads of time off. You. And any interview uh, that stood out down through the years, or any character that you came up with, uh, against, either good or bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, the good ones, the good ones, Alec. I mean. Most like, again, once a guy agrees to kind of um, meet you and have a chat, um, 
most of the time it's 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 worth the trip, you know. Um, I've had some I've had some absolute horror shows. Are I won't name names, but I mean I I've travelled in in times before you had a car and things like that. You know, you'd be getting a bus. I lived in Dublin. I remember getting a bus to a particular place that was more than four hours away. Ulster. To meet, not necessarily, not necessarily, <laughs> to meet a fella, and and I got, uh, and actually when I got there, I had to wait another three hours to meet him, and oh, then gosh. I met him, it was 15, 20 minutes, kind of chatting, he's carrying, so I had to go now, and I was like, Jesus, I remember going up another time to another lad, who agreed, who agreed fine to me, and again, same job, actually met him at, at a quarry, and again, I wasn't driving, so I got, a bus to a certain place and got a taxi out to a quarry. Uh, got out, the glamour of it all. Got out, got in the cow. And the first thing he says to me is, Don't really like doing these. And I was like, Oh, great. Start. 15 minutes later, 15 minutes later, I was calling the, ca- calling the taxi again. Yeah, no, like, Actually, good luck. Like, I mean, uh, I tell you what was, I tell you a couple of ones that were really good. I, 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 I always, I mentioned. Are you name names now? <laughs> we went past Lambo 15 years ago. We went past Lambo 15 years ago and just had one of the most fantastic conversations I've had in a long, long time with anybody. Um, people have this idea of Pat, and a lot of it is, you know, the personality in that, and a lot of it is, is based on bulletproof self-belief and, 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 you know, sort of sense of himself. But I mean, I, I kind of, at that stage, that was around 05, and I, I, it kind of crossed my mind that people of a certain generation forget how incredible a player this fellow was yeah. and what he came through and all. So that was, that was a good one. Eamon McGee and Donegal in later years. Extraordinary mm. lad. Mm. A great time for Eamon. I was, like, I, I, first time I interviewed Eamon was back in the noughties sometime. And uh, we, we've sat down two or three times since. Um, but I'll tell you what was maybe... You know, when I think of things that go right and wrong, and things, it was actually a London interview. I want you here on, although you'll oh, be up, up there now. Here, what? It wasn't in London, and it wasn't me. Jesus Christ! You'd you, get a B plus now. But um, <laughs> what you call it? No, it was over. It was actually the time of the. Um, it was the time of the Connick final, and I had the idea to go over just for a day. I trying to kind of teed up a couple of different people to meet, just to get a sense of London in this in this moment, you know? And one of them was, there was a player and another chap was a chap called Prontius Redican. You've probably come across him down the years. Prontius was involved with Tara Football right. Club and he was there since the 50s and 60s. And I mean, I think there was, it was a kind of a situation. His house was a, was a halfway house for lads who landed in London and they'd stay and they'd go on. But, but Prontius also was a tailor. And he 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 lectured in tailoring in the London School of Design or one of these places. So anyway, the way the day worked out, um, I I I to call to the Irish Post to meet to meet a couple of lads there. So I called in there, and as I said, I was in and out in the one day. So um, I went in and I was meant to meet this player, but he basically st- he just didn't answer his phone. He texted me in the morning. We were ready to go, but he let me down. He just didn't didn't answer his phone. Couldn't find him. So I was like, okay. Uh, I'm, I'd better hightail it to, to Prunchies and so so off out I went anyway and in I went this lovely lovely man from Leitrim uh, and his wife they both in their 80s um, he had the radio chin inside all you know and he had all little bits of memorabilia and we sat down and it turned, out he made, it turned out like he was he was a tailor on Savile Row in the 60s like in the swinging 60s yeah. right 
Yeah. But he was he was the kind of guy he'd be gone to he'd be gone to Kilburn for the pints, you know. He he didn't he wasn't interested in the cocktail parties, even though he went to plenty of them. Uh, he just wasn't interested. But you know, he was a guy. He made he made suits for the Beatles. He made he made stuff I think for George Best. He worked with like some of the best people, and uh, he kind of he was he's such a lovely man. He, he he was kind of a bit bashful almost about talking about the Beatles stuff. But he went out at one stage, and, I, and his wife was there, and I said, I said, guys, he's he's very shy about talking about the Beatles. So, oh sure, he made he made suits for the best of them. She said, and she told, she she chatted away then for a little while about it. And it was just a lovely conversation. Boiling, roasting, hot day. Went back up, got got the tube back, got the got the plane out. Went home, just wrote a piece about Prunchius. <laughs> won, won a McNamee Award that year, and I kind of look back and I go back to the very start of the conversation. What Declan said about you know you kind of have to make. I'm not saying I'm not saying anything mm. exceptional that I did there. No, that was all Prunchius. But my point is that I think journalists, as a breed, are very resourceful, or they have to be very resourceful and. When stuff that was a certain way changes, we have to change with it, whether that's on a day-to-day or on a bigger kind of industry kind of level. Um, but like you kind of go with the flow and you go with the punches and all you're trying to do all the time is reflect a story that you hear in the best way possible, uh, in the most accurate way possible. And some people will like that. More people will disagree with you. Some people will think you're the worst picker they ever came across when they read it whether they never even met you before or not, and other people will will go and try and find you every day or if they see something, they will read it. And that's just the nature of, that's the nature of it. But um, but yeah, like those were, and in all those cases, I'm sure Declan will say the same, when, when you sit down with somebody and you just come away with that little sense that you feel better even about yourself, you feel better for having that conversation. It's that, it's that organic, it's that intuitive, it's that basic. It's two people talking to each other and I'm asking you to tell me your story, and you're telling me your story, and you're happy, and you're, you're just—it's just a good feeling for both sides, and you come away. And um, there's very, very little, there's very little in professional life I think can beat that sense of that sense of satisfaction, you know. Yeah. Just to say that, you know, give two examples of that when that happens, uh, because he articulates so well, like, you know, and it's happened to me a few times and I don't know if it will happen like dozens of times in your career, but you know, maybe once or twice a year you do that and, and it just really kicks you back. I mean, I remember speaking to Johnny McGurk, former Derry player in 2018. It was the 20, it was just the, the week after, you know, the Derry team of 93 were honored and uh, Johnny had developed like in his, in, in, recent years he had developed a serious chronic gambling issue and he had defrauded his employers and he had went to prison and like his whole life like he lost his family went to prison spent you know time there and uh, we sat down to talk and he he knew what it was going to say and you know after about an hour then we got talking about it and his problems in life and you know, Johnny was crying and I was crying I mean it was just an unbelievable experience to be part of that uh, when someone actually who probably never really heard of you the week until the, the week before when they get a phone call asking can, can you let me come into your life and share the most get into the most horrible crevices and some of the things that you've done and you'll share that and I will present that then in a newspaper for the world to see and that then you know, driving home, you know that wow, this is this is this. I need to handle this right, 
and you spend ages at it and it just takes over your life for about a week, you know, a piece like that, um, making sure you get it right. And then you, it gets published. And then like, you know, the happy thing is when Johnny tells you that the day it was published, hundreds of people got in touch with him, yeah. you know, from his playing career, people <clears throat> who didn't even know him, people who are looking for help with their own issues. And then you realize, you recognize, you know, there's so much good came out of that. Even now, like, you know, then you, they're the kind of people then you would maybe keep in touch with, send the odd text, chat to, see, you know, meet up with. And like, as Mick says, the most rewarding thing, like it is, I don't know how much longer we're all going to be at this. Uh, that sounds fatalistic and, and sad and all the rest. I, do, I don't know. Um, but at least for people like myself, Michael, that's the best occupation you could ever be involved in. It's just so rewarding at times. Yeah, okay. It's a brilliant way to finish. Lads, for, for anyone out there, uh, I, I'd recommend during this time, especially go out and buy. So this is our year from Declan and from Mick. And I'm sure there's others, Declan. And from Mick then, the Mickey Hart book, Kings of September, and um, especially the Bloody Field, which I, I must pick up myself and, and have a read during this period. Thanks for coming on. It is over an hour and a half, I think, and we didn't even touch Mick on all the other Joe Brawley and Colm O'Rourke and your friends in the media. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> going, that's going to have, have to wait for another day. Um, but look, it was, it was brilliant to have you on. I, I, I feel myself... It's a fascinating subject. I really enjoy it. And I, I love talking to some of you guys because it's not just about the game and the upcoming match at the weekend and stuff like that. It's, it's proper writing and proper journalism and the stories. You're, I think you're, you're storytellers and, and that's why I'm so interested. Joe, thanks for coming back on. We'll, we'll, um, we, we'll keep Joe Coulter with us anyway on the podcast. And just head over to the website, dailysportscience.com, just for anyone to see any. There's plenty of offers there, loads of stuff going on. We've started a new hurling section as well. So there's new drills and games going up there from Barry Milan. So Declan, we'll have to get you up on it there as well. Um, but lads, Mick, Mick and Declan, thanks very much for coming on. It's brilliant having you. No problem. Thank you, kid. Thanks, Thank man. you, Joe. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.